You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Lord, thank you for holding us. Thank you for helping us. Father, thank you for loving us sinners enough to send your son to die on a cross. We might be saved. We might forgiven, be forgiven, adopted, and become your own. This morning, as we are going to once again focus on you, Jesus, in our studies in the book of Acts, looking again at, at your ascension and, and these angels just talking to the disciples and saying, basically, as you've seen him leave, he's coming back. And so we stand (laughs) 2,000 years later in the power of the Holy Spirit, saved, forgiven, adopted, waiting for your return. We pray for those, Lord, who have yet to give their life to you, that here, outside, in the tent area, the overflow areas, in, in the home, the online audience, Lord, wherever they might be, that they would not minimize your love, the extent of your love, the gift of salvation that you offer them. We pray they would receive you today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen Amen. and amen. Well, why don't you turn around, say hello to a few people around next to you. You ready for some good news? Yes. <laughs> We've got it. You know, there is, there is some good news with this whole pandemic. I don't, it's all according to the news outlet that you go to. But if, uh, if you're here, you're probably going to the right news outlets. You're going to the Word of God first and foremost. Amen? That's why you're here. And His perfect love has conquered all fear and all madness and all psychoness and all everything else. So... I was telling my daughter this morning, I'm like, you know, I'm just not sure what planet we're waking up on sometimes. It's just bizarre. A um, couple things. Let me finish that thought. There is some, uh, some good science out there now that uh, some men that, that look at this logically are saying that we believe we have stepped into the season of uh, herd immunity. There you go. Um, and in that, I'm not going to get into all that. That's not my job up here. But what does that mean for us? It means that they're looking at data, and they're seeing that uh, not just with the vaccines, the number of vaccines uh, rising in America, people taking that. I'm not weighing in on that. That's between you and Jesus Christ. But there are a number of people that are being vaccinated. So that, along with just people who have had COVID, okay, amen, look around the room. You can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. I'm, any sinners here? Okay, COVID ain't as jacked up as you being a sinner, all right? So, you know, and then how many of us have had it and don't know it? That's the science that they're bringing now, the facts. And they're also seeing the immunity of people that have been, uh, their immunity has been built up by being exposed to it and not catching it, but their T-cells have, anyway, it's, it's affected their T-cells and 
They're looking at all that data now, and they're like, you know what? We might be getting through this a little sooner than we thought. And so, amen, that's a good thing. And so not to, not to you know, put some unrealistic expectation out there, but, but do look at the science again and look at men that are thinking um, scientifically and not politically. Was that fair to say? And um, I would even go as far as to say I've got a couple of doctors that I follow that are born again. One is a cardiologist. He's born again, and before any of his updates, he prays for you. Uh, he gives scriptures, uh, and then he, 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 he's like, God, he asks, give all of these people watching my blog right now wisdom. May you direct their steps. And so these are wise men, and they all have a lot of hope. And so um, uh, we are... We are uh, moving forward on our children's ministry project. I think we're going to show a video on that next week. Uh, we've continued to work on that. We believe that uh, all of you that might be watching online that haven't brought your kids back, you're bringing them back in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we believe. And um, don't, you, don't your hearts go out for these young kids that aren't in school? And my heart breaks for them. Uh, and, and we're here. You want to come and drop your kids off, we'll hang out with them. Okay? I'm a kid. I'll play with your kid. I think they need some social interaction. So our homeschool's open, and I love seeing all the kids around here. I think it's very healthy. Uh, they need that. Um, also, uh, just a quick uh, announcement. I think they have some videos at the end, and i got to get to this study. But uh, we're having our first men's stake-in study this Tuesday. And um, just because of the, the response, we're almost out of tickets as far as if you want to eat our smoked brisket that we'll be smoking for like three days and ribs. Uh, you, you probably want to jump on that today, and then those tickets will be sold out, and then we'll invite men to uh, come in here and uh, have a Bible study on the topic of grace. And girls, just so you know, this is going to be about four or 500 men. Isn't that cool? So, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And so uh, we're going through a book, guys, um, that Pastor Chuck Smith wrote on why grace changes uh, things. Or how, What's the name of it again? Grace Changes Everything, yes. I haven't looked at the title, but I've been in the book. And um, I'm going to actually be breaking down the topic of grace, talking about three aspects of it. And I'm going to be addressing, uh, you know, newer people around here that maybe haven't had a teaching on grace, don't have an understanding uh, on God's grace. And I'm going to be talking to non-believers because we know a lot of you guys will bring some of your friends and relatives that don't know the Lord. So we're going to talk about the primary purpose of God's grace, not just understanding that, but that is our attaining righteousness, our being saved, and then how that is to play out in our lives practically. So that'll be Tuesday night. Uh, we'll start to grub at 6. We'll come in here and have a Bible study. Uh, it'll be a grand time. Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 9. You could read this part of, you could read Acts chapter 1 in probably seven and a half minutes. It's going to take us seven and a half weeks to study. We've made it as far as Jesus' ascension. Luke here talks about Jesus ministering the 40 days following his resurrection on earth. He talks about how he presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. He talks about his message that he was, as he walked around, he proclaimed the kingdom. He, he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And then he told the disciples, Luke was like, he, he began to tell us 
Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't depart. Because there's the promise of the Father. Referring to the third office of the Holy Spirit. That John 14 passage we talked about. He will be in you when I leave, Jesus said. He will be with you. He will be in you. And then he will come upon you. And then Luke really ties up the last words of Jesus in verse 8. Where he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that's the appee. And you will become, you know, witnesses, my witness. You're going to continue my ministry on, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then verse 9, while they watched Jesus speaking these final words, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So last Sunday, we really hunkered down on this topic the significance of the ascension. We didn't just look at the ascension. No, we looked at what is significant about that. And for you note-takers, again, I like to to ramp up to where we're going. Um, The one thing that was significant was the cloud itself. Uh, We talked about that, most scholars believing that it was the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, Just like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud came. It was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the the pleasure and the presence of the Father. And they're here as well uh, uh, in Jerusalem as Jesus will ascend. There's this cloud that is there. And we talked about that making his his ascension significance in that the Father was there affirming his mission. He's been on the earth for 33 and a half years. And that that part of his mission, him in the flesh for the last 40 days in the resurrected, glorified body, that is all now just pleasing the Father. And what Jesus said to the disciples in verse 8, that the Spirit would now come upon them. The Holy Spirit would continue to be with them and in them and upon them, continuing to do his work on the earth. And so the Father was affirming all of that by just showing up. And so we talked about that. And then we we talked about that Jesus' ascension was also essential, or significant, excuse me, and essential. Because if he did not go, then as he said in John chapter 16, 7 through 11, the Holy Spirit would not have come as he promised in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, and we broke down what it is that the Holy Spirit would do once he would come. And he wouldn't do these things if he didn't come, and he would not come if Jesus didn't have sinned. And we said that the primary purpose there in John 16, verse 7, was that he would convict. He would convict the world of sin. And we talked about that word convict in the Greek is a legal term. It's, it's, it's more of bringing mankind, all of mankind, not just you, not just me, but every human being, that the Holy Spirit would have the role of convincing them, a legal term of almost a lawyer litigating to convince the court of someone's failure. What is our failure? (laughs) Our disbelief in Jesus, our being apart from him. We We noted that it's not just our sin that will condemn us to judgment apart 
from God throughout eternity in a place called hell. It's not that. Ultimately, it's our rejection and our unbelief of Jesus Christ, right? It was Jesus um, who said in John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned. So this morning, if you're here, we already prayed that God would convict you to give your life to Jesus. And that's what it is. It's, 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 it's looking at him and, and recognizing who he is. And we broke all this down. I don't want to repeat my sermon from last week, but I have a habit of doing that sometimes. But it's so important that you put your faith in Jesus. Would you guys say amen? amen. That you are saved and that you're forgiven and you experience the abundant life down here with him, allowing him to be your Lord, not just your Savior, and that you spend eternity in heaven. It's so important. And then the Spirit also convicts the sinner of righteousness. So, not unrighteousness, the Spirit convicts the sinner of righteousness. And that's the idea of showing us what's right, how you need to be made right. What is right? He shows us what's wrong, that disbelief, that unbelief in Jesus, but now to be made right, you're unrighteous and you need the righteousness of God. And that is something that is imparted to us once we realize who Jesus is and we put our faith in him. That's part of the Spirit's role. So if you're born again here this morning, you've embraced that John 16 promise of Jesus as far as who the Holy Spirit is. He's shown you what's wrong about you, where you failed, and he's also said, now, you're wrong about Jesus, but let me point you to him and reveal him to you so you can be right about him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the idea that um, he would also, as he would say, they would convict the world of righteousness and of judgment um, because they do not believe of me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and, and you see me no more, of judgment because the, world, the ruler of this world has been judged. And so that third thing that the Spirit will do once Jesus ascends is convince you that Satan is a defeated foe. Yeah, like, like, he's got his final judgment, but he was defeated on the cross. He is a defeated foe right now. Greater is he that's within you right now as a believer than he that's within the world, the prince of the power of the air. So if the, the enemy is having any kind of way with your life, it's because you're yielding to him and not to Jesus, even as a believer. So, additionally, if Jesus hadn't ascended into heaven, we talked about, then he would not have that current role as interceder on our behalf. And we talked about him being at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us. We went through Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, talking about him being as our, our high priest who sympathizes with us. And then in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 5, Paul would say, listen, now there's only one God. How many of you guys believe that? Amen. Two weeks ago we talked about the triune God. There's one God. One true living God. The Alpha and the Omega. The God who has always been, is, and forever will be. Amen? Amen. Okay. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's one God. That's what Paul says. And there's one mediator between him and fallen man. And that is the Son, Christ Jesus. You could pray to saints and to Mary, and to whatever else you want all day long, 
But there's one mediator. There's one at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, God says. You want to talk to him? Come to him on his terms. That's his terms. The, the man, the son, Christ Jesus. That's why we pray in his name. That's why we go through him. So how important is the ascension now? If he didn't ascend, we wouldn't have the interceder. We wouldn't have the advocate, as John would say in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I write these things to you so you do not sin. Oh, that's important. And if anyone sins, raise your hand if you still sin. If you don't, you know where I go with that. You're lying, and that's a sin. We have an advocate. We have an advocate. How, how, how many, do you, you know, say you've done something wrong and, and, and somebody advocates for, on your behalf to where they even make it right. That's who Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's why we go to him and that's why we talk to him. He's our interceder. He is our advocate. Now, because of Jesus' ascension, the exalted, glorified Son of God, who is the head of the church, is now working with His people on earth through His Spirit to accomplish His purposes. At the close of Mark's Gospel, I thought this was a cool scripture, Mark 16, 19-20. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying of signs. Amen. What a promise. So, verse 9, when they... And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. May we never see that word, that scripture the same. And while, in verse 10, they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, these two angels, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So as they're looking up, Jesus disappears. They, they've just heard his final words. All of a sudden, two angels are there. we got the cloud. we got the angels. we got the, the, the disciples' jaws on the ground. And they're like, hold on. What were they really saying? They were affirming the promises of Christ's return. This teaching here is meant to drive the followers of Jesus into action. Jesus is returning again, so get going. I was riding my mountain bike yesterday, and I got to this peak where I could see Mount Baldy and the ocean at the same time. Beautiful day. And I begin to think, I go, Lord, this would be a great place to be raptured. <laughs> Took a little longer break than I usually do. And I began to think this thought, and it, it just kind of sat with me. 
if I really knew, like today was my last day on earth, would I have went about this day a little bit differently? I just began to think that way. Oh, then my mind went to like Friday. Would my Friday have been just a little bit different if I really knew that just I rode my bike up and at 1130, Jesus was taking me home? Would my Thursday have been different? Would I have preached a different message on Wednesday night? Now let's take that and personally apply that. Let's start on Wednesday night. I don't know. Let's say we all knew that Saturday at 1130, that was it. The trumpet was blowing. We're in our glorified bodies in heaven. Let's go back to Wednesday. Would your Wednesday have been a little bit different if you knew Saturday he was coming? Do you think our attendance would have been a little different? I don't know. Just thinking out loud. Do you think our worship would have been a little bit different? Maybe a little longer? Do you think some of us might have even got here a little bit earlier? Do you think it would have affected our calendars? Would it have affected the apps? What we went to on our phones? Would it have affected the timers, the alerts? All that we program into our day if we knew he was really coming back on Saturday. Now the question is, do you believe he might be coming back? Because that's where we're going, see. I mean, really. And to what extent does that play out in your faith? To what extent does that play out I don't know, in your marriage, your parenting, grandparenting, in your role here in the body of Christ, in the conversations that you've had recently or will have recently, in the future, I should say, with those that don't know the Lord. There's a promise. The angels are just reiterating what the Old Testament said over and over and over about the Messiah. There would be the first coming. There will be the second coming. And this morning I thought it would be good to break this down so that all of us could at least say in this season if the Lord were to tarry his return that we have a basis of understanding what the Bible says about his coming back again. Some of you, again, as we talked about our introduction to the Holy Spirit, I, I said there's these fancy theological words that we use. Soteriology is a theological term for the study of salvation. The, the word logos is the word it, it, in the Greek. And... Soterios is, is like to study the word about salvation or the Savior. We, we got into the Holy Spirit. It's a, there's a fancy theological term for that. It starts with a PH, I know, but it's, it's, it's pneumatology. Pneumos is spirit and life. The idea is it's the study, ology, the study of the spirit and the life coming together. Spirit of God. And now we have this interesting theological term as it relates to Jesus coming back and the study on the Bible of end times. It's the word eschatology. 
So we have soteriology, pneumatology, eschatology. Eskos is the end. In the Oxford Dictionary, in the 1800s, they began to develop this into an English word, from the Latin to the English. And it, it was a reference. They were trying to make it to where those who had faith would be understood as it related to their faith in the end times. And so when you look up the word eschatology, it's, it's a study on the end times as it relates to the end of human life on earth and judgment. Eschatology. Let me break that down. We just had two angels reiterate what prophets had said several hundred years earlier. There's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter, or Zechariah, excuse me, chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 4, where <clears throat> it talks about the Messiah. Excuse me, it is dry outside. The Messiah coming back and his feet touching the very mountain that he ascends from. Isn't that cool? Now, the angels are like, yeah, he's like coming back. And he's even in like manner as he's left. And so I don't just gloss over that. I don't gloss over anything. But I don't gloss over that. I'm like, ah, he's like, he's like coming back. And the prophecy is that his feet will touch on that mountain, the Mount of Olives. That's, that, that's the whole like Jerusalem proper area where they are right now. And that the mountain would split in two. I don't know, it's just a bizarre thing. And fresh water is going to come up from that mountain. And it's going to flow down towards the Dead Sea, down towards the south. Some of you guys that have been to Israel right now, your minds are all with me on the Mount of Olives and the studies that I've given right there. Or, or down on the Dead Sea. And it's going to bring life to that sea once again. Now, Jesus' first coming, let me just put it in this context, and we're going to develop the second coming, like what the Bible has to say about that. Jesus' first coming just wrapped up with his ascension. His first coming involved him leaving heaven, just like the second coming will, but his first coming involved him leaving heaven, taking on flesh, by way of a virgin birth that was foretold by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before that ever happened. This virgin is going to conceive and bear a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I know it's, it's kind of a Christmas message-y thing, but it's also very, very important to tie in like, when he came, his first coming is very much tied into a second coming. When you look at it from eternity, there's no time lapse. It's just the, the redemptive plan of God. Think about this. The redemptive plan of God, that began before the foundations of the earth were even formed. And I don't know where you go in your theory, your, your theology on creation, but I'm a short earth kind of guy. I'm not the, when they talk about the billions and billions and billions, I'm like, 
No, I ain't going there. I don't think you have any kind of carbon, all that. I don't believe it. I'm a, I'm a thousands and thousands of kind of guy when it comes back to creation. And I, I don't, okay, my mind just went there. I can't go too far there. This is not a creation study, okay? <laughs> but let's go back 6,000 years, okay? And 6,000 years ago, Jesus says, even before you created the earth, you had in mind a body that you would be preparing for me. Now move forward a few thousand years. Now eternity is just like the redemptive plan of God. You understand that? There's no time measurement in eternity. You move forward down here on earth, there's time to measure time. You move forward a few thousand years, and now the prophet is talking about that. Oh, behold, a virgin is going to conceive. A virgin's going to conceive? <laughs> That's a head scratcher. And, 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 and bear a son, and you're going to just name him Emmanuel, the God name, which he eventually will have, in the sense that he is God, the Savior of the world, Yahshua. And then we move forward just 700 years from that prophecy, and an angel, we're, we're checking on angels right here, just comes to a, a young, probably junior high-aged girl, that's living in the city of Nazareth and says, don't freak out. Um, you're, that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have, listen, a miraculous conception. Her conception, the conception in the womb is something that the Holy Spirit did. We'll save all of that again for the Christmas studies. <laughs> And, and then the same angel, what she is now conceived by virtue, by this amazing, miraculous thing, as Mary would even say, how can this be, since I am a, a pathodos, I'm a virgin, how can this be? And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come over you. This is something God will do. And, in the, and then he, he would say, understand that nothing is impossible with God. How many of you guys believe that? In, in our minds, we try and understand everything by measuring it up against our life experience. But here you have something supernatural that we just have to, okay, God, you're going to do this because you can't. And then the angel would go to Joseph and tell him as well, don't be freaking out. That, that which is conceived in, there, in the whole thing. And you're going to name his name Jesus. Now, you move forward and it happens. Mary starts to show. She delivers. They, the, the, there's a decree that goes out that everybody has to like be counted in the city of their father. So they're of the lineage of David. They go back to Bethlehem. And the whole donkey thing. And there's no room in the angel thing. She gives birth the first coming of Jesus. Isn't it cool to see it in that context, by the way? The first coming of Jesus. It's the redemptive plan of God that involves all of this, all these prophecies, and the first coming of Jesus. Now, we have a couple of accounts of his boyhood, but the Gospels pick up primarily on his adulthood. When, when Jesus begins his ministry, the Gospels record three and a half years. So probably from 30 to 33 and a half years, we have the mission. Why he came. 
His ministry, then the mission. The mission is the cross. So three and a half years ministering, basically from Jerusalem on up north to the Lebanon border. That's where he hung out that whole time. That's where he ministered, mostly up north. The cross in Jerusalem. The grave right next to the cross. The resurrection from the grave right there in Jerusalem. For 40 days, he would travel from Jerusalem. And we know he goes up north because at the close of the Gospel of John, he goes up there in those 40 days in his resurrected body. And he sees them fishing at the Sea of Galilee and he calls them in and he has that conversation with them and specifically with Peter, do you love me? Now they're back in Jerusalem. He's given his final words. And part of those words, again, are don't leave this place. But I am. And when he says his final words, he ascends and his first coming and the mission of his first coming is complete. Now there's the second coming. The Bible talks about two separate events as it relates to Jesus coming back. One of them is the idea of him coming back for us and doesn't talk specifically about his feet touching the earth. And that is the rapture of the church. I'm going to give some basis scripture to that. The second, a separate event, his feet actually touch the earth. And he will stay on the earth for a thousand years to rule and reign and to set up his kingdom. It's the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I like to teach in a way that's very practical, like you can get it. I I never appreciate sitting underneath someone like, well, I don't get that. And I like to to go through it methodically, like here's a sequence of events, I'm that way, I rem- I, and I'm very visual. And one of the reasons I give scriptures to back everything up is I want you to go, that's God's word, not Lance's. Okay? As in Lance isn't making any of this up. This is the redemptive plan of God. And so I'll, I'll use this phrase oftentimes for you note takers. All through my teaching, I'll say, for you note takers. That's not because I'm watching. Some of you take notes and some of you aren't. No, that's to go, I wonder if I should be taking notes to the guy who's not. That's what it is. Every scripture I gave you out of Acts chapter 1 so far came out of 30 years of me taking notes. I just boil them down and boil them down and boil them down. I'm like, here's the ones that really just zing. This ties it all together. Every scripture I'm going to give you today probably represents about three months worth of study. And I mean just content, just from other men down to me. It's very simple. It's linear. It's just kind of, there's a flow to it. And if you'll just write these scriptures down, you will have a very succinct, wow, understanding of Jesus coming back. I'll even, I would even go as far as to say, it's a key portion of eschatology. And so if somebody asks you in the future, 
What's this deal about the rapture of the church? What's this deal about Jesus coming back? You could sit down and just have a handful of scriptures that just give the account, that explain it. It's very simple. At the same time, I want you to be just as convinced as I am. As I'm standing on a mountain saying he can come back, I want you to have that same conviction because that's what these scriptures do. If you want to keep living your life pretending as a Christian he's never coming back, I would turn a deaf ear to these scriptures. I would, because they'll convict you. But these scriptures aren't designed to just bring conviction in the sense of argue for the fact that he's coming back, validating the fact that he's coming back. It's designed to give you hope. You're living in a hopeless world. Do you understand that? And if it wasn't for heaven and his coming back for us to take us there, we're stuck with hopelessness. But he is coming back. One amen would be good. I don't know. Okay. So the rapture of the church. Let's... Let's talk about this. So if I was a note taker, I'd write down the word rapture. That's what I'd do. And then I'd write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. And I think they're going to pop some of these up, up here. If not, you just write that down, okay? This describes the event of Jesus coming back for the church, okay? Rapture of the church, the groom... We're the bride of Christ. The groom is coming for us. Okay? He's coming to get us. And the second coming is when he's going to return and bring the church with him. He's coming for us, then he's coming back with us. Okay? Let's look at the rapture. Here Jesus is going to descend from heaven. No man knows the day or the hour. Okay? We, it could happen. It hasn't happened yet. It could happen by the time I'm finishing this sermon. He is going to come, as the Bible says there, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. We have teachings on all of this and break down what the shout is, what the archangel and all that is, but also with the trumpet of God. And then we who are alive and remain, it talks about those. If, if we're to happen today, we're believers. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, some of us look at that. I remember when I was younger and in high school, early high school in the 70s, and they had a lot of Thief in the Night, these really poorly made movies, but they freaked you out. And, and what it did is it just got into your head like, man, he might come, and I, you know, and it, and it, it invoked fear, but that's not what that scripture is telling us. It, on, the, on the heels of that, it says, now comfort one another with these words. So as we go through this, for you that might be new to eschatology, the study of what the Bible says relating to the end times, specifically the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes back to the church, don't freak out over this. It's designed to bring us comfort. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 50-54, also 
a reference to the rapture of the church. It describes a trumpet sounding. And we as believers are going to be lifted up. So caught up and then lifted up. And there it says we'll be changed in a twinkling of an eye. So it's not like a trumpet's going to blow and you're going to have like 30 seconds to get into this big old confessional accept Jesus foxhole kind of conversion thing. No, no, no. That's not the way it's going to work. There's a reason that the Bible allows us to understand or or, uh, puts this in the context that it's just going to happen in, in rapid, fast time. No man knows the day of the, or the hour. The, the parable, Jesus himself talks about the rapture of the church in Matthew chapter 25, where he gives the parable of the ten virgins. We don't have time to break all this down because I've got to get to the second coming. But the, that's the picture of the rapture of the church. And the ten virgins, he's like, five of them are ready and five are not. And the five that were ready... When the groom came, they had oil in their lamps. Oil is a symbol, a type, a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of those who have the Holy Spirit. They're saved. And five of them did not. Now, for us to read that today through the lens of Western culture, we're limited. But to read that parable, Matthew 25, through the lens of biblical culture, of Hebrew culture... It takes on a whole, like, crazy meaning. Let me read or digest this. In their day, marriages were arranged. As the parents would arrange the junior high-aged boy to the junior high-aged girl, they would have a ceremony. They would exchange vows. Groomsmen would be there. Bridesmaids would be there. We went through this in part of our Song of Solomon studies, looking at Solomon's first wedding to the Shulamite bride. Once they do that, they they drink wine, all of them, to seal it. It's a sealed deal. Now they enter into what is called the betrothed state. That's what Joseph and Mary were in when the angel came to them and said, by the way, she's going to conceive. And now she has, by the way of the Holy Spirit. Once they enter into that betrothed state, the, the girl, the future bride, stays with her parents. The groom, he goes to dad's house. God was really big on keeping the land for his people. And part of that, one of these days I'll show you a map with the diagram that God gave to the nation of Israel. It's a massive amount of land that goes all the way up into Lebanon, all the way up into Iraq and Iran. And then I will show you the little peanut-sized piece of land that makes up Israel's boundaries today. But God's intention was to, to give them all of that land and to keep that in their possession. And one of the ways he did that was you, you, you sold to only Hebrews. And and, and another way that you managed all of that is when your son was betrothed, you gave him part of your land and he built his bridegroom chamber, his future house, on your land. You see how that works? So once the wedding, or once once that ceremony is enacted 
and they've exchanged their vows. They've sealed it with wine. The, the bride goes home to her parents' house. The son goes to the father and stays with him. They are to stay pure, stay apart. She would only wear a veil, by the way, during that season. Why? We wear veils today. You know what the veil represents out of Hebrew culture? I'm taken. I'm someone else's. As the bridegroom chamber would begin to look complete, what do you think junior high-aged kids begin to think? Okay, let's put hormones into the equation. The guy's like, Dad, can I go get her? It's just about done. You still got to put up the crown molding, son. I don't need crown molding, Dad. The junior high-aged girl would then, culturally, this is what they would do, she would start having her bridemaids spend the night at her house because they knew the wedding was about to come. Okay, you, you tracking with this? It was the father, culturally speaking, it was the father's responsibility and right to let the son know when he would go get his bride. This is all secular historians write about this. This is part of Hebrew culture. And then they would always kind of do it in a fun way when they least expected. Junior high, come on. So the father goes, son, go get her. Then he'd take his groomsmen, and he would like, okay, and they'd make this big announcement. And there in the house was the bride-to-be and her bridesmaids, completely surprised. They never knew what day it was. When Jesus is talking about his return, there in Matthew chapter 25, by the way, he's on the Mount of Olives, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. And the conversation began with the disciples asking him about the end of the age. Why were they asking him about the end of the age? Because Jesus, when he got up on the top of the Mount of Olives, looked over at the Temple Mount. And he predicted the destruction of that temple. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they were like, whoa, if that's coming down, our world's coming down. And they went right to the top of the end of the age. What are the signs of the end? And Jesus on the Mount of Olives begins to talk about the end of the age. The Olivet Discourse is just that. We'll get to Matthew chapter 24 if I ever finish my story. But Matthew chapter 25, it's in that context. He's talking about the end. And he's talking about the rapture as it relates to his coming. What will that be like? And he gives a story of a wedding. There's ten virgins. They're in a house. Five of them have oil. Five of them are ready. And five of them are not. The five of them that are ready are pictured as when the groom comes, they go into the marriage feast. The five that aren't are beating at the door. And they're shut out. That picture should get most of us like, whoa, okay, I want to be ready. Revelation chapter 4, another great verse. 
in verse 1. So Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, great supporting scripture for the rapture. Now we go into the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, apocalypsis, the, the unveiling. Here, John sees. God lets him see into the future. Um, chapters 1 through 3, we have, in chapter 1, we have Jesus, the glorified Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. We have him. We see him on the throne. Then in chapters beyond that, all the way to chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, Jesus has seven letters, seven messages to seven churches. And each of those letters represent an era of church history. You move into chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, and you might say church history has been dealt with. Now you come into chapter 4, verse 1, and John sees a door open up into heaven, and a voice that he heard was like a trumpet. Interesting. Speaking, saying, come up here and I'll show you things that take place after this. Then in chapter 4, he, he goes and he begins to show the worship setting around the throne. And then from that point on, well, chapter 5, verse 9, we see the church, the redeemed there, singing the song of redemption. So, who sings the song of redemption? Those that are redeemed. Who are the redeemed? The church. The chapters 1 through 3, you might say, Jesus is dealing with the church. Chapter 4, a door opens up into heaven. A trumpet blows. Someone's called up, just like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, in the twinkling of an eye, we're caught up, we're taken up. Now they come up. And the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation until chapter 19. Well, you say, what's gone on between chapter, well, five-ish in there, we see the church in heaven, six through 19. That's what's happening down here on earth. Once the church is taken up, John sees what's happening down here on the earth. What's happening down here on the earth? A one-world leader rises to power known as the Antichrist. He becomes a one-world leader, sets up a one-world monetary system. Think that can happen anytime soon? Sets up a one-world military system. He sets up a one-world religious system, which is all about worshiping him. Okay? That's what's happening on the earth. Chapter 6 through around halfway through towards 19... The first half of the tribulation, then we get into the second half of the tribulation period. It's God pouring out his wrath upon the Christ rejecting. Chapter 19, we just went through some serious time right there. The second coming. Chapter 19, the second coming. If you look at that story that comes from Hebrew culture about a Hebrew wedding... The groom takes his bride. They have a wedding. It's a ceremony, usually in someone's house, a father's house there. And then that evening, they consummate their vows. And then for the next seven days, so they're brought together as one, husband and wife, bride and groom. Then for the next seven days, there's a wedding feast. We have 
We used to have weddings and wedding receptions, but they last about a few hours. Theirs lasted seven days. When we are taken up to heaven as the bride of Christ and we are made one with him in heaven and are now in our glorified state, in Revelation chapter 20, it begins in 19 and 20, it begins to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is brought up to heaven with the groom, and for seven years, not seven days, we're at the, the feast. We're at the feast. The bride is with the groom, seven-year feast. Following the marriage supper of the Lamb is the second coming. You see, following the seven-day feast, a marriage supper, a feast in Hebrew culture, the groom would then come out and pronounce his bride once again. And that's what the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be. It's going to be the groom, Jesus, coming back to earth with his bride. Revelation 19, going into chapter 20, the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a bunch of scriptures, but we're out of time, so we're going to have to carry this over onto Wednesday night. See you then. No? Next Sunday better? Yeah, okay. I know you got your favorite TV program on Wednesday. But the, the, the uh, where was I? Uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, do we have some pictures, by the way? Can you guys show me um, Megiddo? Show me some pictures of Megiddo. Do we have any of those? Kill all the lights. That's a bad picture. They're all fuzzy. Sorry. They're too fuzzy. We'll have them online. Okay. That's the Valley of Megiddo. One of my favorite places to teach. It's up north. Not completely up north. About two hours away from Jerusalem. Three hours away from Jerusalem. You go up into some hills. You walk out onto this overlook. And you see this massive valley called the Jezreel Valley. And in that area, from, from here, we're looking from the top. That's a vantage point. This is where, throughout the Old Testament, most of the battles, when you had kings coming up against other nations, this is where most of the battles took place. Why? Because it was lush, it was fertile, there was water, and there was vantage points. It's a place of war. A lot of Old Testament documented battles took place in the Jezreel Valley. Also, during the spring, going into summer, great climate for war, a lot of wars. In Revelation, excuse me, in, in Revelation chapter 19, we have the old idea of the groom coming back with his bride, which is the church. The first place that he's going to go, there's three places he is going to go. The first place that he is going to go is right here. You guys have heard the phrase, the Battle of Armageddon. There's movies out, Battle of Armageddon, books out, Battle of Armageddon. 
Have you ever thought about you will be part of, as a believer, the Battle of Armageddon? You don't need to watch the movie. That's just wrong, and the books are usually wrong. But this book is very right. Okay? So we're going to come back. And chapter 19, verses 11 through 14. And Jesus is going to to take out these armies that have allied themselves to just... He's going he's gonna to take them out. We don't have time. I, I have two minutes. So there's going to be a big battle. We're going to be part of it. We're going to come back on horses. There, you say there's no cowboy in you? Get ready. He is going to be on a white horse. And on his thigh is going to be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's going to say... You guys done? Wipe your face. Saddle up. We're going down. When he comes down, the Battle of Armageddon, from there, he will go to the rock-fortified city of Petra. If you got Petra, I don't know, all these are probably fuzzy too. But, okay, so we have been to Petra many times. Petra is in Jordan. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is talking to Jews specifically, those that live on housetops, those that commemorate the Sabbath. He's talking to them, and he references Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesies about a seven-week period which is the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19. And he says halfway through that period, the Antichrist is going to walk into the temple, which on the Temple Mount right now, there is no temple. So the temple needs to be built and daily sacrifices need to be restored. That prophecy is also outlined there in Daniel chapter 9. But then the Antichrist is going to walk into that temple And he's going to say that he is God. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, that is the abomination of desolation. Bolt. Leave. Get out. Run to the mountains. And they will go, as we read in Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, will go to a fortified city right there, and they'll be protected the last three and a half years during the tribulation period. So Jesus is going to go from the Battle of Armageddon and he's going to go to there. A place called Moab. Edom. Scriptures refer to it. Petra. It's in Jordan. And it will even talk about, there's prophecies that say, why, speaking of the Messiah, why are your garments stained? O Edom. O Moab. It's a reference to him coming from, I believe, The Battle of Armageddon, which is a bloodbath, and he wins, we win. And he's going to come to where he has protected 144,000, the remnant of his people. They're going to see him for who he is. And they're going to be finally on board with Jesus as the Messiah. Amen? Amen? And he has one more stop. And he's going to go then. The third stop will be to the Mount of Olives. 
And there he's going to put his foot on the Mount of Olives. And it is going to split in two. I'll give you all the scriptures on Wednesday. And um, let me get down to that part here. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. He put his foot there, right where he left. So we just went full circle. We went from his first coming, ascension, to his second coming. Boom. Foot placed down on the Mount of Oz, right back. And if that were to happen soon, that's a 2,000-year period in between the two, first coming and second coming. And then he is going to enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. Do we have pictures of the eastern gate here? Revelation 16, verses 18 through 19 for you note-takers. Okay? So Jesus going to Petra before that, Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, entering Jerusalem through the eastern gate, Revelation 16, 18, and 19. Now, why is he going there? He's going to establish his kingdom where he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So, what do you have? Eastern gate, fuzzy. All right. Any, any, any pictures from a distance? Okay, keep going through them. You know, hey. Oh, right there. All right. I wish I had my. That's Eastern Gate. Kidron Valley, we're standing on the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus would have been standing with his disciples when he would have looked over. That's the Temple Mount with that, they call it the Mosque of Omar. It's not a mosque, but the Golden Dome. Um, that's all um, occupied by Arabs right now. Um, it's, it's technically Israeli owned, but they, for the sake of war and not having war, are allowing them. That's one of the Bible study. But um, I believe to the right of that will be where the Antichrist will help the Jews rebuild the temple. Okay? So Jesus will go through the eastern gate. Now they see the gates are blocked up with bricks, if you can see that right now. Um, the Arabs have done that, and they put a cemetery in front of that because they know that we believe our Messiah is a rabbi and no rabbi would ever want to walk on a grave. And of course, the stones are going to keep him out. So, um, <laughs> how'd that work with his grave? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Kind of that logical part, you know. Cool, cool scripture. That passage in Revelation um, that I gave you there, I like to read it, looking over at this 16, 18, and 19, talks about an earthquake and the cities will be shifted. They're gonna, the elevation of Jerusalem is going to change around. When he touches, you've got to realize, when the Mount of Olives splits, this is all part of it. Okay. That gate that you look at there is built on top of, you understand, you're looking at thousands of years of history. That one is built on top of the original eastern gate that he would walk in and out of when he walked on the earth. And many scholars believe when he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to break apart. That thing that you see there is just going to be rubble. And the, the real eastern gate, which is there, 
is going to be exposed. And he's going to go in. He's going to set up his kingdom and rule and reign for a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ. Okay. After that brief introduction, let's stand. I like to say, just to make sure, because I know this is a lot of years pressed in, and I've been, I've seen, and are, is it slow enough? Are you tracking? Yeah, is that helpful? Okay. If he didn't ascend, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come. He wouldn't be at the right hand of the Father, and he wouldn't be coming back for us. And our eschatology would be very different. You understand that? That's why I'm going through this very succinctly, methodically. This is, I, would, I would teach this at this level to junior hires. I really would. I'd break it down, pull out your pencils. I'd make them take notes, though. <laughs> Here I won't. And then I'd test them, too. I'd quiz them. I won't do that as well. All of this is to instill conviction in you. The conviction to convince you all the more that he is coming back in like manner. Now when we read that, we should be like, oh, I see it. A little fuzzy, <laughs> but I see it. He's coming back. You got to see what happens to us when we're having Bible studies right there. We could barely get through them. The presence of God just overwhelms us. We're right there. We're weeping. It's, it, it's going to happen. Out of the... I'll break it down this way. Something around 600 specific prophecies concerning the life, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the glorification of Jesus. Okay? Hear me when I say this. Everything that was said about him up until this point has been fulfilled. You understand that? So the likelihood of like, eh, we didn't get this part right. No, this, like, this is going to happen. It's in motion. All right? So from heaven's vantage point right now, from, there's, no, there's no time measurement in heaven. The Son is interceding for us, advocating for us. And when he looks to the Father, it's like, now? Can I go now? It's the Father's. That's why he says, when, when the disciples are like, you know, wanting to know. Remember we talked about that. When he was talking about the kingdom of God, and they wanted him to set up the literal kingdom. What did he say? In Acts. We just studied this a couple weeks ago. It's, it's not for me to be talking about the times and the seasons of me coming back. That's in my Father's hands. And we learn that again today. It's, it's, it's great to tie all of this in. But the Father's plan of redemption has moved forward. All of those prophecies concerning, even in Genesis chapter 3, that, that, that of salvation and moving forward and, and the old covenant being fulfilled in the new and and, and Everything pointing to Jesus. There's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. This 
is in that same lane. It's in motion. So the question is, if I actually believe this, he's the one who says, behold, I come quickly. You define what that means. Unexpectedly. He's like two men working out in a field. One's taken, another one's left behind. He gives these pictures. He's coming like a thief. You never know when a thief is going to come, but you prepare as if he will come. That's the idea. I better stop. Father, thank you for these truths relating to our future and the end of the age as your word spells it out. We pray, Lord, for those here, those online, that this is just the study of end times is new to them and this might be overwhelming in the sense of, wow, I had no idea the Bible talked about this. Well, we're in a church that actually is going to teach the Bible. And we're so grateful that we have amongst us many over the years who have a strong conviction in your word, a growing conviction, and, and, and enough to where we give our life to you Allow you to be our Lord, and we would be looking up with expectation and hope and comfort as we see you becoming our soon coming King. If you're at that point where you're like, I, I need to give my life to Jesus. I, I, man, if He were to come today, I wanna, I wanna be part of that group. Just tell him that right now. He's listening. Just say, Jesus, I, I, I need you. I need you to save me. And we've talked about this so much, Romans 3.23. We're all sinners. We're born sinners. And he didn't put the responsibility of forgiveness on us. He put it on his son. His son went to a cross for you to forgive you. You must just believe that and receive that. And so tell Jesus right now, I, I believe you're God. You took on that flesh to die for me, to give your life for me. So I ask you to save me. Forgive me. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. And just Continue talking to him throughout this day. Thank him for that salvation. Ask him to give you love for him, his word, for the body of Christ, for those that are lost. Ask him to give you a hunger for him and his word. Just walk with him. Lord, as we continue through this interesting time, as the church is pulled apart by so much weirdness, May we be united by the hope of your return. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. They do have announcements, but it's...